when I was uh, a new Christian uh, growing up in high school, I loved watching YouTube videos of Christian versus atheist debates. It was just exciting, just the intensity and the arguments, and I'm sure maybe some of you have. And some of these debates were formal, and some were like on the streets and superheated arguments, and, and they would be over the topic of the existence of God or absolute truth or something along those lines. And some of these videos, they were helpful to me, and maybe some of them not so much. Taught me more. There was harshness more than gentleness in some of them, right? I'm not going to get into apologetics this morning so much, but one thing I want to note that so many of those debates, the argument from the atheists would go from claiming that there's just not enough evidence for God. And if God would just open up the heavens and speak to us audibly, then the atheists would believe. The atheists would go from that argument to then eventually making this argument that God is a moral monster and he's not worthy of my worship. At that point, the atheist showed his true colors. He went from this passive unbelief of there's just not enough evidence, if I had enough, then I would believe, to then this personal antagonism of active suppression of God. And in, and in many of these debates, the Christian would so often go to Romans 1 to support their argument. The Christian would show from Romans 1 that there is, there's more going on than just an evidence issue, but there's a heart issue going on. And the issue is, is that the God of the Bible says that we are all guilty of our sin, but we instead want to not acknowledge it, but push it away instead. So it's not a passive, I don't believe, but it's an active suppressing, I don't want to believe because I don't want to come to terms with who God is and who I am. And I would agree with that. Romans sets out to give us the good news of the gospel. But to get there, our passage this morning sets out to show us that we are all guilty, but we don't want to acknowledge it, so we instead push him away. So my big idea, if you're writing notes, is this. All people are guilty because all people suppress the truth. We are still in the beginning of our series in Romans. So far we have read that Paul is eager to come to Rome to preach the gospel to the church there. And his reasons, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is eager to come to Rome because he he wants to preach the gospel. And he wants to preach the gospel because it's powerful to save. The gospel is powerful to save because in it we obtain righteousness of God by faith. More than anything, Paul wants them to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. And more than anything, it's what he would want for us today. It's what God would want for us today. So now, in our passage... Really, from verse 18 of chapter 1 to to 3.20, Paul is, well, 
and more, so more on. Paul is now going to spend a large portion of his letter giving an, ex- an explanation of what the gospel is. The gospel means good news. But to get to that good news, he has to first show us the bad news, all the way through 3.20. So it's going to be, buckle up your seatbelts for the next few weeks. He has to show us the bad news so we can appreciate the good news. And Stephen Lawson, he gives this really good illustration. He, he gives this illustration of imagine you're in a jewelry store. And at, at the, jewelers, the jewelers at the store, they present their diamonds with a black felt in the background. They choose this dull, unattractive, ugly, if you will, background to make the beauty of the diamond pop out. And in the same way, we need to see the ugliness of our sin before a holy God to appreciate the beauty of the gospel from our finite perspectives. We need to truly see the bad news for what it is before we can even come close to seeing how precious the good news is. So Paul lays out our passage this morning so we can see why we should care about the fact that the gospel is powerful to save. So my first point, God's wrath is revealed against all people. I'm going to be zooming in on verse 18. The answer to the question, why should I care about the gospel, is found in verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This word reveal is, we see this a couple times. Verse 17 says, God's righteousness is revealed, given to those who live by faith. Verse 18 uses the same word reveal, but this time God's wrath is revealed against all people. This is why verse 17 matters. This is why we should care about the fact that we need salvation, because all people are under God's wrath. And Many people will say, that God saves us from the destructiveness of our sin, or they'll say he saves us from low self-esteem, or from political turmoil, or poverty, something like that. These are important, but more than anything, we need saving from God's wrath. God cares about our day-to-day in this life more than we do ourselves, but our greatest problem is an eternal problem. And God cares most about that one. We need to ask the question when we talk about God's wrath. What do we mean when we say God's wrath? When we think of wrath, we can think of like a fiery outburst of emotion, of anger. Right? How many of us had mothers growing up? You can think of your mother yelling you at a kid. If you don't calm down, y'all are going to feel my wrath. Who's all all had that? But God's wrath is not like a human anger, where it is a selfish outburst of emotion. Rather, it is his personal anger against sin that is executed in perfect, righteous judgment. His judgment will not be too harsh. It will not be too light. It will be executed perfectly. There won't be anyone who receives God's wrath, who weren't supposed to or who didn't deserve it. There's only one, and that was Jesus. More on him later. His wrath, his judgment will be 
Good. Angels in Revelation 16 sing out, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. He goes on to say, It is what they deserve. Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And some might make the pushback, What's God wrathful against? Why is he so, what's he so mad about? Paul answers, saying in verse 17, the, or 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness and unrighteousness is simply everything that God hates and everything that goes against his character, whether it is direct impiety against God or it is sin against God by sinning against his image bearers. And the pushback is, is many people do not think that they deserve God's wrath. I don't think it, it's not a big deal. It's because we think our sin is not a big deal. And here's the thing. We are witnessing in our society, with all of its moral revolutions, a suppression of God and truth. Because we have taken God out of the equation and because of that, we have reduced all morality down to a matter of consent. As long as it doesn't hurt me, and it doesn't hurt you, and I consent to it, you consent to it, then it's all good. Then this is a good thing. It only becomes a big deal if you hurt me. Then I'm going to make myself the judge, and you're going to feel my wrath. All right? It's the same idea as the end of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We think this way because we take God out of the picture and we make ourselves autonomous and we define what is a big deal and what's not. But the truth is, when we sin against anybody, the first person we sin against is God. And I love you enough to say this. Sinners deserve an infinite punishment because they sin against an infinite God. God is infinite in righteousness and holiness and value. And there's this illustration I love to kind of bring this out uh, from this documentary called American Gospel. Imagine I take like a rock. The rock is sharp. I'm holding it in my hand. And I take this other rock and I take the sharp rock and I'm just scraping the other rock. You're probably like, what are you doing? Are you trying to start a fire? Okay, imagine I take that same rock and I go to a junkyard with some junk car that nobody cares about it's done with its life, and I, and I scrape that rock down that junkyard car. You're going to ask the same question, okay, what are you doing? There's no value to it. I take that same rock, now I go to a used car dealership. There's a car for sale. I do that same action with that same rock, and I run it down that car. Now I'm in trouble, because there's some value to that thing. And now I've got to pay, and deal, the dealer's like, what are you doing? Okay, now I take that same rock, I go to that, I do that same action, but now I go to a Lamborghini dealership. And I run that rock down a Lamborghini. What are you doing? It's of more value. How much more valuable is God than a Lamborghini? We take our sharp rock of sin and we're running it down the infinite value of God. And we say things like, oh, it's just a white lie. 
it's not a big deal, it doesn't hurt anybody. But we sin against God first before anybody else. And, and white lies, and that's the other thing, we, we, we misinterpret harm. We don't understand what's harmful and what's not, just amongst each other. It's not just, and it's not just the white lie, but it's everything else. Everything else we do, we sin against an infinitely valuable God. Psalm 7:11 says this: "God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. Imagine you get the front row seat to every sin that is hidden, the sins that people don't want you to see, the sins that people don't want you to see them with. God sees every single one. Every last sin that you have hidden from everybody, he sees them all. He sees every sin that hurts his image bearers, and more than that, he sees everyone that is, every sin that's sinned against him. We deserve an infinite punishment because we've sinned against an infinite God. That's, that's what the word says. And I love you enough to say this. Now, when we talk about the wrath of God, and the heaviness, the weight of our sin, we can get multiple responses. Some of you in this room might feel the conviction of the, the heavy weight of your sin before a holy God. Some of you might be hearing the wrath of God, and you might be immediately turned off to that idea. You might say, no, no, I'm a decent person. I can't come to terms with that idea. I think that's too harsh of God. Some of you might think that maybe it's the flip side and, and maybe you, I don't know where you're at in life, but maybe you've just come to a place in your life where just the brokenness of this, the destructiveness of sin has just eaten you away and you're, you feel like you're at rock bottom and you might say, you don't need to tell me twice about my sin and God's wrath. I'm at the point where I hate myself. It's no wonder God hates me. I, I don't know where you're at. But I want you to know that the story doesn't stop at verse 18. That's the good news. I am thankful that we can back up just one verse and be reminded of the gospel. Just as much that God is revealing his wrath against all ungodliness, so has he revealed the way that we can be righteous before him, that we can be forgiven by faith in the righteous one, Jesus Christ. I mentioned him earlier, that there's only one person in history who didn't deserve God's wrath. That person was Jesus Christ. And he took on God's wrath at the cross for you and me so that perfect justice can be satisfied on our behalf. The Father and the Son were not divided on this great love for sinners. The perfect, eternal love that the Father had for the Son was cut off has. And the Father's wrath was poured out completely on Jesus. And if you think that God's wrath on you is the end of your story, look to the cross and see. As the hymn sings, we're going to sing in Christ alone, that on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Put your faith in Jesus. 
By faith you will be united with him. And the eternal love the Father has for the Son will be the same love he has for you. It's the good news. But let's keep going. Um, Down verse 18, talking about suppressing the truth. Paul describes what ungodliness and unrighteousness does. He says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. The word truth here has a a double meaning, Charles Hodges says. It means that what is true and what is righteous. And we get that from chapter 2, verse 8, when Paul says, but for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So by their unrighteousness, they are suppressing righteousness. And this idea of suppressing the truth gives this picture of an actively holding down and pushing away. It is not passive, but an active pushing away of God. It's like when you're in the swimming pool and you're holding a beach ball under the water, right? It's pushing back at you. And you hold the beach ball down, but it's fighting and it's only a matter of time that it's going to shoot up out of the water, right? And so it is. When people suppress the truth of God and the righteousness of God with their sin, it's an active suppression. And it's only a matter of time before it shoots back up. You cannot get rid of it. cannot go away. The natural bent is we don't want to come to terms with our sin and guilt before a righteous God. So we actively suppress it. We say, if I could just hold the beach ball under the water long enough, it'll just go away. And we can live in this ignorance of God. But it doesn't work that way. The beach ball always shoots back up, and we can't help but know that God is there. Which brings me to my second point. Man is without excuse. Focusing in on 19 and 20. The bad news for every single one of us is that without Christ, we all deserve hell. I love you enough to say this, because of our sin against God, it is a reality that man constantly tries to avoid and makes excuses for. An excuse that happens often, and what Paul was dealing with here is this, what if you've never heard of God? Are you still guilty? Will he still send you to hell? Paul was dealing with the issue that Gentiles, non-Jews, never knew God for thousands of years because God only revealed himself in a special way to the Jews. And this argument is still made today. What about people who never heard of Jesus? Are they guilty? And Paul's argument is simple. No one is completely ignorant of the truth. Everybody knows God is there. Everybody knows God is there, but everyone pushes him away. Every single person knows God in a general sense because God has revealed himself in creation. We have this general knowledge, this general revelation of God, this natural knowledge of God. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And part of being made in the image of God, he has given us the desire to worship and has revealed himself enough to know him. But the problem is, is that we take this inherent God-given desire to seek and true, to seek the true God and know him, we redirect this into a form of worship that we choose. This is idolatry. Man contemplates God, but then man immediately takes the thought of the true God and makes it 
into a God of their own imagination. This is what Paul witnessed in Acts 17 when he saw the Athenians' statue inscribed to the unknown God. And this is why I think there are numerous religions today. Somebody can push back on that. Um, It is another way of suppressing the truth. This is why we need more than just general revelation, just creation. We need the gospel. We need to be made alive spiritually. So the atheist who says, I don't have enough proof that God exists, is being dishonest with himself because God has given us all that we need to know that he is our creator. We are his creatures and has even given us the ability to know that we are liable to do right and to stay away from wrong. Verse 20 says, For his invisible, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The invisible God has created all that is visible to us. When we look at every detail of creation, it all screams that there is a creator. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We just need to look and know that the glory of God is on display. In Acts 14, 15 to 17, after Paul had healed a crippled man in the Gentile city Lystra, the people there began worshiping them as gods. But Paul responds to them saying, this is what he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. We know that God is good from creation, that he satisfies us and he's gracious to us. The objective beauty in creation argues for a beautiful God, right? Artists will climb to the top of high mountains early to paint the picture of a sunrise. Beautiful sounding music can, great, can make just adults bring them to tears. People will hike miles to the bottom of the Grand Canyon to see a beautiful waterfall and have a soup by. I've done it. You should go do it. It's beautiful. The beauty of creation screams for a beautiful creator. Another, I'm just giving you examples of how we have no excuse. Did you know that many great inventions designed by man was taken from God's design of creation? So this thing is called biomimicry, right? You're just, it's someone takes, looks at like a design in creation and they mimic it and they make their own design. And and secular scientists do this and they don't even realize that they're acknowledging that by designing this thing based off of nature, they're acknowledging that there's a designer. Um, it's kind of funny. But, um, like the, so like the phone on your, the camera on your phone, right? And this was designed based off the human eye, right? The way that the eye focuses and unfocuses, it's the same functions, same design as like how we make the, the camera. Or the aerodynamics of the bird flying is the same design we use to fly planes. Velcro was invented based off of 
the design of this burr flower, which sticks to things like Velcro. Right? So why can we say that, like, no time and chance couldn't have made this camera on this phone? Like, somebody had to have made this and designed this. Why can we not say that the human eye that's like a million times more complex than this camera was not designed by anybody? Creation screams for the existence of God. Not only does looking around at creation give us no excuse for God, but experience, experiencing things like love and justice proves God's existence. God is love and he has given us the capacity to love. The absolute objective experience, like when, when my wife gave birth to our sons, and it's like, you, if you never, like I never, the first, our first son Isaac, gave, like I didn't experience like a, the love of a father for a son like in, my, in the shoes of me being a father, but like when I'm holding him, I'm like, I've never kind of had, like where did this love come from? Like, you know, and then you have your second one, you're like, I don't think I can have the capacity to love two of them, and then you do. And you're like, where does this come from? We experience, like love proves God's existence. God is righteous and just, and we have the experience or the capacity to desire justice, though justice might be stained and tainted because we're fallen creatures, but just these absolute objective truths of love, things like love and justice just show that there is a God. Verse 32 shows this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's crazy to me. General Revelation even says that. The excuse that man did not have the opportunity to know God is invalid because God has revealed himself to all men. I don't believe an excuse for unbelief can come down to a lack of evidence. There is enough evidence that we can spend our whole lives studying. We know he is there. We know he is holy. We know we have sinned against him. I don't think there is such thing as a passive, oh, I don't have enough evidence. But it's another active excuse for suppressing the truth. All men know God and his righteous decree, but they instead suppress him and push him away. Which brings me to my third point. Man gave God up. Verses 21 to 23. There is no greater being than God. And there is no greater reality than the glory of God. You were made to behold the glory of God. All the universe is centered on God's glory. His glory is beautiful, and eternity is not enough time to behold it. His, but when we sin against him, we are robbing him of his glory because behind every sin, what happens is this exchange, this dark-hearted exchange. We exchange the glory of God for something else. Every good thing comes from God. It's a gift from him. We are meant to take those things as gifts from God. And as verse 20 says, we are supposed to give honor and thanks to him. We are meant, they are meant for us to turn to God and worship him. But we take his gifts and we make them into our gods. Verse 23 says this. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds 
and animals and creeping things. The root problem of sin is idolatry. And Paul says here, images. People in his day and ours would make a carved image and worship it as their God, thinking that their God is manifesting in it. We might not do that in our culture today, but we're not much different from that when we exchange God's glory for other things. We exchange God's glory for self-image. Images we make of ourselves on Instagram or Snapchat and others to worship and to be worshipped. And if we don't like what we make of ourselves, we can add a filter. There's this thing called Facetune where you can literally change the face, the shape of your face to your liking. We exchange God's glory for not just self-image, but images that we're looking at on a screen, whether it's an influencer, pornography, or just trying to escape reality with video games. We exchange God's glory for images of material possessions. If I just get this next thing, I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. And God is saying with all of this, all these things are garbage compared to my glory. You and I are made in God's image to behold God's glory and to glorify him. We were made to be like mirrors pointed out toward him, reflecting his glory out towards the rest of creation. But because of our sin, we are now shattered mirrors pointed away from him towards ourselves, reflecting our own image, however we've defined it to be. Behind our sin, we are robbing him of his glory. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the what? The glory of God. It's another way of saying we have exchanged God's glory for sin and we've fallen short. Verse 25, a couple verses later in chapter 1, says the same thing in a different way. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. When you sin, you exchange trusting in God for trusting in a lie. The serpent's promise to Adam eating the fruit was a lie. Sin's promises are lies. When you exchange God for a lie, you are giving God up. When you sin, when you sin you're telling God, I don't need you. I want nothing to do with you. You don't satisfy me. This does instead. That's what we're doing when we sin. Don't give God up for a lie. Don't give him up for a lie. Lies don't keep their promises. God keeps his promises. And he alone satisfies. Paul calls this trading of God's glory futile and foolish and is the result of a darkened heart. The heart darkening gives this idea that the more one continues in sin, the deeper their heart plunges into darkness. And we're going to see more of this in next week's passages, passage, but I just kind of want to bring it out. Sin progressively grips the heart ever tighter when we stay in it. The heart of the bank robber is more calloused after his hundredth robbery than he was after his first one, right? His conscience is even more seared after the hundredth than it was the first time. We're not as bad as we can be. But 
But there are two ways that exchanging God's glory is foolish and futile from our passage. The first reason is because of the infinite value of what you're giving up for what is infinitely of little value in comparison. Verse 23 says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now notice, check this out. Man is already, according to Genesis 1.27, an image of God and not God, right? But that's not what you get when you exchange the glory of God. No, not just the image of God. But you get the image of man. That's not, that's not even what you get. The, I was going over the original Greek with Josh, and he said, it says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for the likeness of the image of mortal man. So you're not even getting the image of the image of God. You're getting the image of the likeness of the image of God. Do you see? And then that's, we're not even getting into the animals and the four-legged creatures. Do you see what Paul's doing here? The, the point is distance. When we exchange God's glory, we are distancing ourselves. He's emphasizing the infinite difference in value between the real and the copy. Piper makes the illustration, when you make this exchange, you are bartering God for the image of an image of an image. You sell the original billion-dollar masterpiece for the copy of a copy of a copy that you buy at the dollar store. We give up that value. The second way Paul shows this dark-hearted exchange is that it's foolish and futile is by showing that the glory of God is incorruptible and man is corruptible. Verse 23 says that God is immortal and man is mortal. Man, mortal means perishable. God lasts forever. But man, Isaiah says, surely man is grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you want God forever or do you want grass for a minute? If you value other things more than God, if your life is really driven by another value, then you exchange the imperishable for the perishable. Though they are giving up God who is everything for that which is nothing in comparison, the world still calls this wisdom, right? Verse 22, claiming to be wise. They're claiming to be wise doing all of this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There is a false wisdom of this world that is upside down to the wisdom of God. The world says it is wise to give up God for what this world has to offer, but we know that is foolish. We've seen that this world offers nothing. So my argument to you is don't, this is my argument to you, don't give God up. Don't give him up, but give everything up for God. He is worth it. Christ went to the lengths from heaven to earth to death on a cross so that you can have everything in him. Don't give up the diamond for the banana rotting in the sun. And this word foolish, we, we see it again back in verse 14. And this just shows gospel good news that the gospel's for everyone, including the foolish, which is everyone. 
at one point. Paul says back in verse 14 that he is obligated both to the wise and to the foolish. So if you are not a Christian, you have not gone too far for the gospel not to reach you. There is no pit of darkness that God cannot pull you out of into his marvelous light. Believe in Jesus and turn to him today. Don't give God up, but give everything up for him. Let's pray.